Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, and we're in week 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand really high, and the guys will be around with Bibles. If you get a Bible from us, it's page 633, so raise those hands really high, page 633. We're going to look today at Galatians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and then next week, we'll look at verses 11 through verse 18. So we'll finish the book next week, and then we'll be into the new series for Easter. We're actually, let me just tell you where we're going to go. After Easter, I think this is the order we'll be in. We'll do that series. Then we're going to do, I, th- I think this is the way it's going to be, four weeks on the life of Joseph, six weeks on the life of Daniel. And that'll get us into July. And I go on vacation, so it doesn't matter to me what you do after that. I don't care. (laughs) Couldn't care less. Good luck. Let me know. Turn out the lights when you leave. So anyway, that'll get us through to that. And then then we've got that. And then in the fall, the next book we study will be 1 Peter, and we'll start that in September. So we're all set. We've got it planned and looking forward to it, working on just all of the stuff that goes into that uh, right now. This is week 11 in our study in the book of Galatians, and we've titled the series Fighting for Grace. And to this point in the study, uh, we have seen Paul defend his apostleship and defend the gospel. And that was very biographical in week one or chapter one and chapter two. Chapter three and chapter four become very doctrinal. And so the the essence of it is this, is that what what is the gospel? And, And Paul says the gospel is grace plus nothing. The Judaizers had come in behind him and said, no, grace is important, but then there's something you have to do too. Specifically, they were saying, listen, to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew also. So circumcision became the issue. And so we studied that pretty intensely for, we, for chapter 3 and 4. We get to chapter 5 and 6, it becomes very much application. And, and so especially the last two weeks, and really last week, we looked at verses uh, 16 through 26. The idea of I'm either walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. Verse 17, and the flesh sends its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So that's the battle we're in. So I'm either going to be led by the flesh, the world system, my own flesh, my own sinful desires, or by the spirit of God. Now, how will I know if I'm being led by the flesh or led by the spirit? Well, he gives us a very easy way to measure it. He says in verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. And then he lists them. And you've got them there. We went through them last week. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, outbursts of anger, jealousy, strife, all this, and and things like this. And he also says at the end of verse 21, I've talked to you about these things before. This is not new territory. So if I'm being led by the flesh, that's what I'm going to see in my life. Verse 22, if I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm going to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So he said, now, here here is our call, verse 24, is to crucify the flesh and its passion. So there's the battle. If if we live by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit. And and then verse 26, which is a wonderful uh, transition to chapter 6, verse 1. We could even kind of put it in the uh, 6th chapter. You understand that these letters weren't written with chapters and verses in there, and we've come along afterwards. We could move verse 26, actually, into the 6th chapter. It says, let us not become boastful, challenging, or provoking one another, envying one another. So he said, "I I don't want you to be 
known as somebody who's, who's bragging and provoking and there's envy, but, but rather there should be a spirit of love and graciousness and gentleness and helpfulness and support. And, and that always the, the I, even in the midst of sin, and that's what we're going to look at when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, is to be not, not punishing or punitive, but, but to be restoring. So he said, you need to not think in a selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed way, but you need to think about people other than yourself. That you need to fall in love with the creator God of the universe, whose spirit invades your heart, opens your eyes, gives you a desire to be with him and to serve him, and that then overflows into our relationship with each other. Now, when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, we're, we're right away... We're struck by this. In fact, I think I'll just read. Let's read these 10 verses. I'll make a couple of comments along the way and then come back to them. I would tell you up front, uh, somebody said it's almost like a, a series of, of Christian fortune cookies and that there's like a, a saying and then another and then another. There's a couple that seem a little bit disjointed, but overall, I think we can see how this comes together. Here's what he said. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So there, there's really clear, here's what needs to be done, here's who does it, here's how it's done. Okay. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. He's continually coming back to us and telling us we need to examine our own life. And if you're going to do, and he's suggesting this is part of the Christian life, is to deal with each other's sin. And he says in this process as you're doing that, it's to very much be self-aware of yourself. Bear one another's burdens, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If anybody thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, not regard to others. So I say, I want you to look at your own life. As you do, I want you to evaluate it, but not as it compares to each other, but it compares to God's standard. And now, rather than think you're really something, you're going to realize that apart from Christ, you're absolutely nothing. Verse 6, this just seems to be totally out of context with the rest of this. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. And then verse 7, a principle of sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Now, that I find kind of an alarming statement. Remember the first time I ever read it, I'm thinking, really? Why, why do I get tired of doing good? But now that I've done it for a while, I kind of get it. <laughs> for in due time you will reap <laughs> if you don't grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are in the household of the faith. Sin is something that's present in the world, and it's present in the life of the believer as well. James 3.2, we all stumble in many ways. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar, and his word is not in us. And when we get to Ephesians chapter 6, the next book, Paul talks about the armor of God, put on the full armor of God, because we're in a battle against the devil and his schemes. He's crafty. We put on once and for all and leave on for all time, 24-7, the rest of our life, the full armor of God. 
So we know it's not as a follower of Christ that all of a sudden we cease to sin. In fact, there's almost a sense in which you become more aware of your sin. Because you see things that before you just kind of dis, uh, dismissed, and now you realize that all of a sudden those, those are sins. You hadn't even thought about them before. So in our life, as a follower of Christ, comes sin, and it needs to be dealt with. When all of a sudden we sin, we don't break our union with God, but we jeopardize our communion with him. We, we also jeopardize really our own usefulness. We jeopardize the body because when we sin, we affect one another. 1 Corinthians 12, we are one body joined together when one sins, it affects all of us. And, and Paul's saying this is really serious business. That, that we understand in the midst of sin that we're, we're going to come in contact with those who are, look at the phrase in verse 1, caught in any trespass. There's two possible ideas here. One is actually caught in the act. Like the woman who was caught in adultery, right smack in the middle of it, as it's going on. They're eyewitness to this. Or the idea of being caught up in or overtaken by. The one who's in the middle of some sort of trespass, meaning missed the mark or stumbling. So he's saying there's going to be these people who are involved in sin, and you who are spiritual need to come along and deal with this. Now, I just acknowledge up front, this is not something we do often. We do well, we tend to ignore, and yet Paul says it's absolutely important for the individual and for the body as well. Now, he's saying you just can't do this in some cavalier way. He's not, he's not appointing you as the sin police where you're going around and you're just inspecting everybody, looking for who, who is in the midst of some sort of transgression so that you can come along and you can identify them, you can show a spotlight on them, you can punish them, be punitive, Maybe you can cut them out of the body. Worse yet, and we're going to get into this, or begin to expose that sin to all sorts of people. He said, no, there will be those that are caught in sin, and you need to come along, let's go back to verse 26, not with a spirit of boasting or provoking or envy, but those who are spiritual. There's all sorts of kind of concern. What does it mean to be spiritual? I was reading a story of a man who built this tower in the center of town, kind of a pole, when I say tower, a pole with a platform on it and, and went to, to live up there for six years to kind of remove himself from the, from the earth and the people and the sin. And somehow that was super spiritual. So you'll, you'll read about somebody, who, monks or nuns who go into a nunnery and the idea is withdraw from the culture and, and that's seen as spiritual. We have all sorts of ideas of what are spiritual but, but here's what God says. If I'm led by the Spirit, again, back to chapter 5, if I'm walking in the Spirit, if I'm led by the Spirit, if my life is manifesting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We made the point last week, Paul could come in there and say, here's the fruit of the Spirit. He could give us any activity. He doesn't give us any. He said, here's how I know if I'm really being led by the Spirit. And then those nine characteristics. He identifies them in the singular, love is, though there's nine of them. He said there's these things, and they all come together. The other thing that kind of struck me as I was putting this together is at, at, at least all eight of, at least eight of them, I guess you could move self-control out maybe, but at least eight of them require interaction with other people or other circumstances. So, so I don't know if I'm loving until I'm in contact with those that are unlovable. 
I don't know if I have joy until I'm in difficult circumstances. I don't know if I have peace until I experience the hardship of life. I don't know if I have patience until I'm put in either trying circumstances or I'm <laughs> with people who kind of push and push, push and push. And push some more, right, to the end. You know them, right? So, so here are these people who are caught in these trespasses. You who are led by the Spirit... You need to deal with this, and the purpose is to restore. It means literally to mend or to repair. It's like setting a broken bone or, or, or putting back in place a dislocated shoulder. One of the authors writes this, A Christian who is critical and judgmental as he attempts to help a fallen brother does not show the grace of Christ or help his brother and instead stumbles himself. So you begin to get this sense. If you're going to be about this, Paul says, then you need to understand that you need to take a look at your own life, that you need to understand that you're not moving out of either superiority or inferiority. Either one of those are going to distort the way you deal with this person. It's not that you're coming along, you're spiritual, they aren't, you're superior, and therefore you want to flex somehow your spiritual muscle on this, or you're feeling inferior, and now you feel like you have an upper hand because now you know something about them. He said, no, here's the whole thing, okay? Here's what should be done is you should restore a person, return them to the former condition. Again, one of the authors, sometimes Christians notice the broken bone of sin but never get past making a diagnosis. <clears throat> they simply stand around talking about what bad shape the sinner's in. Wow, people say. Would you look at that broken bone? I mean, just look at the way it's sticking out. Boy, am I glad I don't have a fracture like that. Meanwhile, the brother or sister continues in the pain of sin. This kind of treatment is better known as, as gossip. Sadly, there are even times when Christians condemn sinners, blaming them or even punishing them for needing to go to spiritual emergency rooms in the first place. In other words, isn't that part of it? You're afraid to even talk about your sin because you know the very act of talking about it, you're going to be put down for doing it. Rather than encouraged... And rather than supportive and helpful, when people come along and say, I really admire that. They're treated like outcasts, harshly scolding them for being spiritually out of joint and apparently forgetting that they themselves are sinners in need of grace. So in the midst of sin, what should be done is to restore people. Who should do it are the ones who are spiritual, and it should be done. Did you get that word? In a spirit of gentleness. F.F. Bruce writes, one test of true spirituality is the readiness to set those who stumble by the wayside on the right road again in a sympathetic spirit. And then the author adds, if we can't do this gently, we better not do it at all. Let someone else do it, someone spiritual enough to perform the task delicately. So if we, if we go to the idea of, of restoration, it's like setting a bone. When we're dealing with sin, this is going to be a painful process. Sometimes it is a long process. And I wrote this down. And I, 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 this may be brilliant. Okay? I don't know. I'll let you be the judge, those of you who have real discernment, who would say it's brilliant. Is that this requires, this is really good, humility on both people's parts. It's not just the humility of to come and to say, I'm in the midst of this sin. But if I'm going to deal with this, it has to be done in a spirit of humility. It's not a spirit of, of spiritual superiority or arrogance or looking down on somebody. 
It's to understand, really, but by the grace of God, there go I. So let me give you verse 1, two paraphrases. Eugene Peterson, he says, Live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day's over. Uh, J.B. Phillips, even if a man should be detected in some sin, my brothers, the spiritual ones among you should quietly set him back on the right path, not with a feeling of superiority, but being ourselves on guard against temptation. So he said, listen, in this whole sin, we, we shouldn't ignore that. And most often, it's not done in some formal way. It's done in the one-on-ones. That's Matthew 18. It begins with, if a brother sins against you, you don't talk to each other. You don't put it on Facebook. You don't ask friends to pay, pray about your weak brother or weak sister. You go to them in private and say, here's what happened. Let's talk this through. So when we talk about, about uh, a discipline or church discipline, we see church discipline all the time. I had somebody, I don't know, three or four weeks ago say to me, you know, in this situation, you did this and you, you, you hurt me. You sinned against me. I said, geez, I'm really sorry. I'm wrong. I see what you say. Well, in a sense, that's church discipline. That's, that's a person who sinned. And when the, the burden's not on the one who sinned. It's on the one who sinned against and says, go to him. And, and that's rectified. And so we, we dealt with that. Now, he's talking about life when he gets to verse 2, and he says, bear one another burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Which seems to be in contradiction to verse 5, which says, for each one will bear his own load. He's talking about two different things there. That one in verse 2 is, and and I was trying to think of something reasonable. Let's say say to carry the drum set. If I didn't didn't want to, to disassemble these, I couldn't possibly carry the drums by myself, so I'd say to Aaron, you need to help me with this. That's the word or the idea in verse, in verse 2. It's a burden that's beyond any one person's ability. The idea of load in verse 5 could be the, the load of carrying something that is a, is a burden. It's a load, but it's one that I'm capable of carrying. So he says, here's the deal. Okay? In both cases, it presumes, I love this, in our life there's burdens. In our life, there's a load. And there are times when you aren't going to be able to carry it on your own. There's times, by the way, when you are, so don't be bringing it in here and screwing up everybody else's life with it. Okay? Some of, some of this stuff you can handle. You don't, you don't need anybody to help you. But there are times, and it's not just sin. I made a list. Sorrow, worry, doubt, fear, failure. There's times when you're just hurting and you're needy or you're lonely or there's illness or there's abandonment. Or you're discouraged, or you're depressed. The, the idea is not just that we have these burdens, but we're incapable. That's the idea of verse 2. We're incapable of carrying this load. It's too difficult for us to lift on our own. Now, now this is not very hard for us to see, because we can go right to our biggest burden, which is sin and guilt that's associated with that, and we know we can't solve that. That's what this whole book has been about. This whole book has been about the fact that you can't pay the price for your sin. That's the law. That's the flesh. Don't even try. That if you break a law, you break the law. You're under condemnation. That's been, if you've been with us for 10 weeks, that's almost been the theme every week. For 10 weeks, we've been saying roughly the same thing. That our problem is we're separated from God by our sin, 
And, and, and there are essentially two ways of responding to it. One is to self-realign, self-cleanse. It, it's, it's to somehow please God by doing good. And, and Paul calls that being under the law. And he said that was never the design right from the very beginning. From the very beginning, uh, God never gave us the law. It was chapter 3, verse 24. That verse should be all marked up and circled and underlined. That the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ so, so that we might be justified by faith. That you can't get yourself. Listen, if you feel defeated in trying to be good, when you understand that the standard is perfection, if you feel defeated, that's because you are. That's the whole point. You can't do that. But I can get in right relationship by coming to Christ in repentance and, and faith. So, so there I am in the midst of this, carrying a burden of guilt and sin, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can't fix it. He can. He carries that burden. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He, he will never permit the righteous to be moved, Psalm 55, 22. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. There's two aspects to that. Number one, we'll go to the second part first, is that God cares. I think about it when we pray. The reason we pray is because God cares, and we believe he can do something about it. doesn't mean he's got to do what we want him to do, but, but he cares. God cares for his people the same way you care for your kids. And so we're to, to cast. The idea is deposit. And, and, I, and I, I remember the, the, the last time I taught that verse, I took it to a, a new level and added direct deposit. So for years, as, as you know, if you've been around, I didn't do anything. Well, I didn't do anything at the house. But I didn't do anything as it related to like banking and paying bills or something. So early last year, one day, our, our, you know, so, so Susan handled it all. And that's when, when she got very, very sick. And I came home one day, and our water was turned off by the, by the town of Gilbert. And I don't know what the bill was, 50 bucks, 80 bucks, I don't remember. And there were thousands of dollars in checking, so it wasn't that. It, it was that Susan, in the midst of all of this, and this is my fault, not hers, but that was like our big struggle. Our last two big struggles was when I said, you can't drive anymore. And then I want to take this. And she said, no. And I said, okay, I'll let you do it. And, and this is when I said, okay, honey, I need to do this. Okay? So it's my fault. This is not a reflection on her. It's a reflection on me. So I went over to the bank, came in. There was a cute little blonde girl. And she said, can I help you? And I said, well, I don't know this. Somebody can. So who's the most patient person you have at the bank? And they said, I said that's Hannah. And I said, well, where's Hannah? Right there. And I said, see, as a customer. I said, that's okay. I'll wait. And I had a plastic bag from Fry's filled with stuff. And I took it into Hannah. And I said, Hannah, um, you know, I'm Tom. And I want to tell you a story. And she said, okay. And I said, well, I was married 32 years ago. She said, oh, this is a long story. I said, I'm giving you the short version, Hannah. Okay. <laughs> 32 years ago, she's very sick. She did everything. I did nothing. Now I got to figure this out. And I spent two and a half hours with Hannah. And she took me all through this stuff. And one of the things we did because she said, you don't look like you're capable uh, of, <laughs> of maintaining this on a monthly basis. And, and I said, I, I, I'm probably capable. I just don't have a desire for it. So she said, well, let's just go to auto pay on everything. And then let's just take your checks from work and we'll direct deposit those. And so that's what we did. And then things we couldn't pay, I, I just gave the guys their credit card and they just bill it directly to the credit card, which is on auto pay. So I don't write like any homeowners and like two or three other things. 
That's the idea, the direct deposit part of the check. That, that's the same thing. As these, cast your cares on him. Literally, as these cares of the world come in, you just direct deposit them on him because they're too big for you. They don't even hit your account. It's not something that you can carry. There's some things you can, but there's nothing wrong with admitting, this is bigger than me. I can't handle this. God, you need to do it. You need to carry this love. You need to give me the grace. So, so we need to, to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. In the study guide, and I'm looking around and people are writing in study guides, so you have them. If you don't have a study guide, you can go online, you can download it for free. But in the study guide, under the section for deeper reflection, there's a wonderful little two-paragraph article by John Piper called The Law of Christ. And Piper writes this, if a Christian brother or sister is weighed down or menaced by some burden or threat, be alert to that and quickly do something to help. Don't let him be crushed. Don't let him be destroyed. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said they bind heavy burdens and hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. Don't increase the burden. Make the load lighter. It, this, this is great. And we highlighted this, these, this sentence. Here's a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than you can, than you can, I'm sorry, than if you became a millionaire ten times over. Develop the extraordinary skill for detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to making them lighter. That's the main point of the passage. Bear one another's burdens, especially taking the trouble to help people realize their sin and, and, and repair it. And then he talks all about the things we worry about. Sickness, unemployment, loved ones, all of these things that we want to come alongside and bear burdens with, which he said is great, but the ultimate problem is, is the sin. And, and to do this, verse 3, you're going to have to see yourself as you really are. If you think you're really something, you're going to do this with an air of superiority. You're not going to help. That self-righteousness is going to produce in you a kind of a, a punitive, judgmental attitude. Really, what he's striking at there is pride. Mark Driscoll writes this about pride. The sin of pride has been repackaged by clever marketers and academics in our age into much-needed virtue and then sold to undiscerning culture. You know, repackaging, like self-esteem is pride, self-realization, pride. Self-image, pride. C.S. Lewis called pride the, the chief sin. It's one of my favorite all-time quotes. That, that pride is, an, is ultimately a complete anti-God state of mind. It was through pride that Lucifer became the devil. Here's another great Lewis line. Pride gets you cuts in the line to hell. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. He said, wait, verse 6, or I'm sorry, verse 4, we should examine our work and compare it not, not to one another. So along comes this person who's, in, who's, who's trapped or caught in sin, and you come along and you see yourself as superior to them, and your judgment then is you're here, but you compare yourself to, to God's standard, and now you get an accurate view of who you really are. Now, I don't know, in, in, my, in my life as a follower of Christ and in teaching, is I'll get on something and I'll stay on it. 
I just tend to, to, to just get there and, and, and grind it out. And, 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 and it becomes like something really important to me and, and therefore something I come back to again and again and again. And years ago, when, when I taught through 1 Corinthians, I, I spent a bunch of time on chapter 13, which is the love chapter. And I found myself not intrigued by the first part, though it's great, okay? So Paul defines love. Love is, and he gives 15 characteristics. Eight of them are negative, seven are positive. So you know the list. Love is patient, love is kind, yada, yada, yada. We said the essence of it is it doesn't seek its own. But the last verse is 1 Corinthians 13, 7. And it says about love, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, and it endures all things. So if you've been around for the last three or four years, you've heard me go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 7 over and over and over again. For me, okay, for, for, for me, if I'm going to really love somebody, then I have to have that attitude. I just uh, uh, pulled that verse out, and we looked at it, I think, three or four weeks ago as we were talking about dealing with one another. But it, it seems to me, and, and I think that this idea of love Though it's certainly not a topic that's been ignored. Everybody's written about it and sung about it and talked about it. I think it's going to be something I'm going to spend the next year, year and a half on. The idea of love. First of all, God's love for me, my love for him, and then our love for each other. Love seems to be at the center of a lot of this. For God so loved the world. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14, let the love of Christ compel us. Well, I couldn't help as I was looking at the situation that Paul lays out in Galatians 6, I think of 1 Corinthians 7. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, and love endures all things. I'm going to read you like five or six paragraphs. You ought to be sick of them by now. Five or six paragraphs that I, I've probably already read you two or three times this year. They're right out of the MacArthur Commentaries. Uh, you don't need to go, that's really good, can I get a copy of it? No. Go, grace to you, online. Everything John has, you can get for free. Go to Bible, click Galatians, or I'm sorry, click uh, 1 Corinthians, click chapter 13, go to verse 7. And here's John. He's got a longer comment, but I want you to see me a paragraph in each one of these. And I want you to think of them in the context of ministering or bearing another person's burden, dealing with another person's sin, dealing with any source of, uh, of interaction, Husband and wife, parent and child, friend to friend, boss to employer, boss to em or employee to employer, whatever it is. That if we really love them, love's at the key of all this. To love your neighbor, what does that mean? Patient, kind, all this. If you don't have 1 Corinthians 13, 7, then this is never going to happen. Love bears all things. That means, that word just translated bears, means to cover or support or therefore protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure or ridicule or harm. Genuine love does not gossip or listen to gossip. If I'm really going to protect this other person in the midst of sin or relationship, I'm going to protect them. I'm not going to gossip. I was talking to somebody the other day, and uh, this person was explaining to me that he has been spending some time uh, defending me against some rumor or whatever the heck, something. It had nothing, just so you know, it had nothing to do with sin or something diabolical. 
And, and so this person had come to him and said, I've heard this true, and it's this rumor true, and all this. And, and the more he talked, the more angry I got in, in, a, in a righteous indignation. Okay. <laughs> And the more, the more angry I got, and the more I said, I don't understand. You're not helping. Why would you even entertain this? First of all, the person that came to you, who happened to be a pastor, by the way, that person should be shut down right there because it's none of his business. If he wants to talk about it, I'm not hard to find. My number's listed in the phone book. You can email me here at the church. I'll give you my cell phone. I publish it all the time. And by going and tracking this down, what is, what is the point of this? No, I, you didn't protect. And again, just so you know, because you're going to want to run out. This makes it worse. I got this. Okay, talking about this makes it worse. Because what is it? What's going on? Got nothing to do with any sins. Got stuff doing, going. Just life, personal stuff. What I'm doing or not doing. Okay? And as I'm paying, and I go, and I'm like, why? Why? What is the point of this? How are you edified? Am I built up in this process? And I'm not acting in a way. I hope you get this. This is. These are hard illustrations to use because you sound defensive. I'm just trying to illustrate the point. Let me read it again. Love. love and, and, and one of the things is, I'm doing all this because I really love you. Really, let me help you out. Love protects people from exposure and ridicule and harm. I don't feel protected. Well, boy, we love it. We love the traffic in that stuff. I hate it. Because I see how destructive it is. And love believes all things. Love is not suspicious or cynical, and when it throws its mantle over a wrong, it believes the best. Love believes all things in another way. If there's a doubt about a person's guilt or motivation, love always opts for the most favorable. And love hopes. Even when belief in a loved one's goodness or repentance is shattered, love still hopes. When it runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. As long as God's grace is operative, human failure is never final. God did not give up Israel. Peter uh, was not given up on by Jesus. Paul didn't give up on the Corinthians. God doesn't give up on you. And it endures. That word is a military term. It's used of an army holding a vital position. A position at all costs. Every hardship and suffering, it endures. Love holds fast to those it loves. Now really think about, think about this in, in that passage before you. If you're going to be engaged in what God says we should be engaged in, which is being in others' lives, especially to bear burdens, especially spiritual burdens, then you're going to have to do it in a spirit of love. A spirit of love is not to expose. A spirit of love is not punitive. It's not to get, boy, you can't wait. I mean, it just killed me. I can't tell you. I don't get it as much as probably some of you do, because people understand. I'm pretty vocal about this, okay? When somebody starts a sentence with, I probably shouldn't tell you, I have a tendency to say, then shut up, okay? If you shouldn't tell me, why are you telling me this stuff? And it's so destructive, and it's usually pride by the part of the person who's telling because they want to say that they've got something. It just, it just makes me puke to be in this. And, and if I saw it out in the world, I expect it with a with, with the president and Santorum and all, I expect all that. But in the church, really, honestly? No, oh, the only reason I'm telling you this is so we can pray about it. No, you pray about it. I don't even need to know it. But there's no way you're going to live a Christian life in community. Because we're talking, this is down and dirty here. We're talking about caught in trespasses, bearing one another's burdens, examining ourselves. 
bearing our own load. We're talking about community. You're not going to have community and a spirit of love if you have this spirit of sniping and exposing and not protecting, nor are people going to feel safe with you. Talking to somebody just a couple weeks ago, and they're telling me, "You, we have this mutual friend, and so and so did such and such." And, and as, as as he's talking, I'm thinking, "I wouldn't tell you anything in a million years." Are you kidding me? See, that's what love is all about. Ultimately, he he said, "I want to restore that person, protect that person, care for that person." within the context here of the body of Christ. So I'm going to come back to love over and over and over again. Let's look um, at verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Paul gives us this advice. And, and again, I, I, let, me, let me come back to verse 5. In verse 5, he's saying there are these burdens that you don't want to become a burden by sharing something that you can handle yourself. So there are all those things that, that, that you don't need outside input you, you, you may have whatever it is, but it's something that you can handle. So handle it. But certainly be open and willing to share, to help. And, and this may be the toughest thing, and to, and to be helped. You know, I tend to be, and I'll just be really honest about all this stuff, I tend to be fairly private. So like when I'm in the hospital, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want you up there. You know, what, what, there's not much to see, there's not much to talk about. You know, what's your blood pressure? You know, I mean, why? why? But the struggle with it is, am I denying you an opportunity to serve? Like, I will just be even even within Sarah and Haley, they're going, Dad, I want to help you. And I'm going, I don't need any help. We'll bring you food. Do I look like I need food? <laughs> I, I mean, does food look like something that's evaded me? I mean, that's what the doc... That's what the doctor said. He said, we're going to deal with this, you know, have some surgery and some other things on this heart, but primarily we're going to deal with it through diet and exercise. And I said, wow, what's plan B? You know, I mean, I, do I? I mean, food? But you see what I'm saying there? I get that. That's a delicate dance. There's humility on both parts, but there's burdens that you can care. It would be unfair to say, I need this from you when you don't need it. Oh, yeah, you, you get all that. In verse 7, Paul introduces a concept of sowing and reaping. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. So there's the basic principle. One author writes this, the universe is under the control of invoidable laws, as scientists and others learned men throughout history have recognized. The physical sciences are, in essence, the study of those physical laws. Apart from the consistent operation of absolute laws, science as we know it couldn't exist. So you have the law of, second, uh, law of thermodynamics, or you have gravity, or you, whatever, whatever those laws are. Well, you have in agriculture, and now in spiritual things, the law of sowing and reaping. And the law of sowing and reaping says this, you must sow to reap, and what you sow, you will reap. So if, if no one that we know of plants corn and expects to get wheat, or, or plants wheat and expects to get beans, or plants beans and expects to get potatoes. So when the boys were little and Haley was teaching them about planting and growing and waiting and patience, so they planted sunflower seeds. And just as you would expect, they're out there the next day going, Mom, where are the sunflowers? 
So they were learning about the, the patience in reaping. It never occurred to them. It wouldn't occur to either one of them to go, Mom, where are the roses? Well, you don't get roses. If you want to plant roses, you plant rose seeds or whatever it is. I don't know. Whatever you plant. How do you get it? I don't know. Something. Not a farmer. But you get it, right? We question, we question the size of the yield. Am I that stupid? Is that what you're wondering right now? What do you plant a bush, but where do you get the bush? Huh? Lowe's. Exactly. Whatever. You can email me on that one. Whatever. Delete. But, but I question the size of the yield but, or the harvest, but I never question what I'm going to harvest. So that's what we have it. And he says, don't, don't be deceived, and God is not mocked. Again, let me read you a couple of the paraphrases. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, is ignoring God. Again, the Phillips, don't be under an illusion. You cannot make a fool of God. God is not mocked. It means literally to turn your nose up at and don't be deceived. In other words, it's a waste of time. I have this thing, I have this arrangement with my girls. I don't think I've talked about it here. I'm not even sure it's, yeah, I'm not sure you need to know this. But, but I have an arrangement with my girls that if the University of Iowa ever wins a national football title, I will have the Tiger Hawk, the logo, tattooed on a specific part of my body, a part that it's highly unlikely you'll ever see, okay? <laughs> now, as I've shared this with people, they go, aren't you worried about this? No, I'm not worried about this at all. If, if the entire NCAA Division I football teams were all marshaled, meaning all their planes crashed, if all the planes crashed but Iowa and... Uh, I, I, pick a pathetic... U, U of A, okay? <laughs> No, because they beat us, so we can't go there. Just go to the worst possible team you could ever have in football. They would still, somehow, that other team would win. I'm not afraid of this at all. I don't waste, I don't go to bed at night thinking, man, do you think I'll ever have that tattoo? Okay? It's a waste of time to think about it. Here's what's a real waste of time. Though I guess in theory that could happen. I just can't imagine the situation. Here's a real waste of time. Thinking you can deceive God. You can't fool him. He knows everything. We talk about it all the time. He knows what you say. He knows what you do. He knows what you think. He knows what you're going to say, what you're going to do, what you're going to think. He knows what you're doing right now. So don't try to deceive him. He's not going to be mocked by this. You, you, you can't expect to plant seeds from the flesh and somehow reap the spirit. But don't you be deceived yourself. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. If we say we have no sin, 1 John 8, we're deceiving ourselves. Prove yourselves, James 1, Prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. And he said, here's the basic principle. That fruit's inevitable in our life. We're producing fruit. We're either producing fruit, go back to chapter, chapter 5, we're producing fruit of the flesh, verse 19, 20, 21, or fruit of the spirit, verse 22, 23. If I'm being led by the Spirit, I'm going to see in my life, among other things, I'm going to see these things. If I'm being led by the Spirit, 
I'm going to see dominant now, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I, I made reference to it, but not in all the services last week. But I, I want to go there this week. So keep your finger in Galatians. Go back to the book of James. It's James chapter 3, verse 14, page 655 in the Bible we gave you. And, I, and, I, and at last week, I find myself going here. And I, and I find myself, again, my mind going there this week when we're talking about sowing and reaping. This is a wonderful section and where James is, is talking about the tongue. He's talking about faith and works. And then he talks about wisdom, a worldview or thinking. And he says, basically, there's two kinds of thinking. One's the flesh, and it's earthly, natural, demonic. One's the spirit, and it's heavenly, supernatural, and godlike. So in your life, you tell me, what do you see? Verse 14, do you see jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart? Because if you do, verse 16, you're going to see jealousy and selfish ambition, and therefore disorder in every evil thing. So if you're constantly in tension at work, constantly in tension with your neighbors, Constant tension with all the relationships. I'm, ge I'm guessing one of you, probably you, because that's the consistent thing in it, is acting in a jealous, selfish way. Uh, on the other hand, if my thinking is supernatural and godly, verse 17, I I'm going to see in my life purity and peaceableness and gentleness, reasonableness. There's going to be harmony. It's impossible. It's impossible. If Susan and I are married, and my desire is to serve her, her desire is to serve me, it's impossible for this thing to not work. Now, we can't stay there all the time. I got that. But I know when I'm in trouble in that relationship, I guarantee you, I'll go and I'll look at my heart, and I'm going to see selfishness and jealousy. That's the problem. I want it my way. We'll see that all the time. When someone, they, a relationship, let's say a marriage that's in trouble. Okay? I had one, you know, a while ago. It's a guy that for seven years he's been unfaithful, yada, 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 all been exposed. They're going to stay together. He's now been clean, faithful for three months. He's very frustrated that she isn't trusting him yet. And I said, pal you got a long hill to climb, little man, okay? And already, all, all you're doing now is show me what started all this before because you're, you're waiting for, it's not, it's not the burden, it's not on her to accept you. The burden is on you to be faithful. So when I grow impatient, just think of the, think of the fruit of the Spirit, okay? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When I'm in the flesh, I'm not loving, I'm not patient, I'm not kind, I'm not gentle, I'm not peaceful. That's what he's saying in James. James 3 is a beautiful illustration of the fruit. And he, and he says that. So the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there's a whole bunch of ways of, of measuring this in a very practical way. So what's the fruit? Is it the fruit of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit? Now, I, we'll go back to Galatians 6. I did a series in Priority Living. Priority Living is a study that I do during the week. Okay, if you're interested in it, don't need to go to it. If you're interested in it, every resource we have is free. You can go online, priorityliveaz.org. I did a series called Recovering Our Lost Legacy. 
And the idea was, what do we pass on to the next generation? Beyond inheritance and just dough and stuff like that. And I talked about duty and stewardship. One of them is the principle of consequences. That requires a long-term view. That what I sow today, I'll reap tomorrow or the next day, and that tomorrow may be a long way away. And so the whole principle of that was, my decisions today affect tomorrow. So I have to sit down and I have to understand. You know, if you talk to, you talk to somebody and their, their desire is to be a, a, a medical doctor, they've got to make all sorts of difficult decisions, investments. I, some people call them sacrifice. I like investments. Investments along the way that I've got to think long term because I'm not going to have a normal life. I'm not going to get to do what a lot of people do. I, I, I'm, I'm going to have less free time. I'm going to be more disciplined. But that's part of what I have to do. You're in the final, you're some team going to the final four, and you're a kid there, and most likely, especially at that level, for you to play at that level, there's had to be a lot of discipline and a lot of sacrifice, a lot of investment, a lot of hard work. If you decide not gonna eat, here you go. I, I can you decide not gonna eat well, not gonna exercise, not gonna play hard. I just want to play game day. I, that, if you're good enough, that's going to get you somewhere, but that isn't going to get you to the top of the field. So you have to all of a sudden think about something big and long-term, and you have to see life. And this is what I used to try to tell the girls, is life is more like a video or a film or a movie than it is just a snapshot. I've been cleaning the, the house, and uh, I've found like three or four rolls of film, and I'm really intrigued. I'm curious. I wonder what's in there. So I know I may see a picture at the beach and one in the mountains and one at Christmas, one at Easter, one with all of us together, one of us on vacation. Those are photographs. They stand alone. A film, this frame determines this frame determines this frame. And that's the way it is with life. So you, you, have, you have all this. One of the, we did a Q&A in PL this week, and one of the questions was, I'd be interested in hearing your view on the future of the country. And I thought, you've you got to be the only one in the world that wants to hear that. But, but I can tell you this. When the dropout rate among high school seniors is 47%, there's a bill coming due on that. They're not dropping out to go to work at, at Intel. When, when people are in line saying, I just want, I want what I deserve here. You know, I won the lottery, but I still want my, my food stamps. When, when, when you think you can ignore your kid, ignore your kid, ignore you, but then give them a big, give them a trip to Disneyland. That'll make everything okay. There's a bill coming due on that. Here you go. This, this, is like, this, this is like the elephant in the room. When your national debt is $15.2 trillion, not to get off on that stuff, I'm just saying we're going to sit around. We are watching and, and, and we are fiddling while the U.S. burns. There's no way that bill isn't due. You can't do this. You know it in your own life. You can't. For every dollar you spend, you can't spend 40 cents on a credit card and not know there's a day coming due. It just is the law's consequences. Paul says, I got all that. Don't get that upset about those things. Forget, forget your national debt. What about you? What are you sowing and reaping? And then he says, don't lose heart in doing good. And I'll tell you why. Because it's hard work. You, you start dealing with people who are engaged in sin, and, and you come in, even if you're invited into their life, you, you'd be stunned at the number of people. And I, I think the guys that are elders would tell you, prob probably the, uh, the most discouraging thing we have 
is people that we help and help and help and then throw us under the bus at the end of the day. Generally leaving, generally in the process uh, of saying things that are probably not true, half true, and saying you didn't do enough. So we'll have people that come in and will go, we're in financial, we're in financial difficulty. And we'll say, we're here to help. We want to help. So bring in your bills and let us go through your bills. And they resent that. So you want us to help, but you don't want any accountability on the other end. Well, I can handle it. Well, if you could handle it, my friend, you wouldn't be in here. See? And after a while, you go, you know what? I'm just, I'm, I'm just losing patience with this. But he said, you hang in there. Why? Because your motive is not short-term, it's long-term. And you'll have an opportunity to do good. You'll have an opportunity to be used by God in a, in a significant way. Don't grow faint. Sometimes you just need to hear this. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't even matter what the endeavor is. I'm listening to, to Haley. Haley sent me a text this morning. And um, they have a new baby. We'll talk about it more another day. They have a new baby. And uh, Yale said to her, Mom, was this baby made in Japan? <laughs> Not sure what, what the thought process was, but you just have people all around you. Um, and, and you're a mom, you're a stay-at-home mom. So you got, you got four kids and the oldest is six. Two of them are less than 14 months. Here's what you need to hear sometimes. It's worth it. Hard, but it's worth it. And the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. Things are hard, but they're worth it. God is good. Don't, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. He's faithful. He knows. We said we bear one another's burdens, and we said the biggest burden we have is sin and guilt, and the one who deals with that is Jesus, and that is the cross. Every Sunday here at Redemption Church, we stop, and we go to the communion table. Neil's going to come lead us in communion. If you're over in the conference center, uh, Brian's going to close uh, your time over there as soon as we're done. So let's pray as the guys come here. Father, thank you for the amazing truth that you give us. Thank you for the fruit that you produce in our life. And we pray that we would sow fruit that would bring honor and glory to you. God, we uh, worship you, praise you, and we do that in Christ's name. Amen.